we're back with the TV flashcast about Doctor Who. Um, I'm Jason Snell. Every time uh, we do this, I'm joined by at least one wonderful guest. My wonderful guest this week is James Thompson, coming to us live from Scotland. Hello. Hello. Uh, a pleasure to return. Finally, a perspective that isn't North American. Well, for another story that's set in Scotland, you need to have a Scottish correspondent. I, I, I do appreciate it. Um, that, so, he, go ahead. I was just going to say, even though I've never been to Caithness in my life, but I, I'm told that it doesn't have the sort of big hills and it's in fact completely flat, so there would be no dams. Well, from from where I'm sitting, it's all Scotland. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I, the details are, are completely lost on me. Uh, but before we before we talk about before the flood, we should probably touch base about under the lake, and if you could give me maybe your quick thoughts about that, because like you know last week I I talked about it with Serenity, but um, I'm curious what you thought about part one before we dive into part two. Well, because I knew it was a two parter, I was sort of looking at it and trying to work out what the solution was from the first uh-huh. half, and. I got it mostly right, uh, not to skip ahead, but uh, the they were obviously setting it up as a, as a kind of puzzle um, to be solved. Sure. And uh, yes, yeah, so it, it was it was it was an interesting setup, and I, I I liked I like the the base under siege type um, episodes anyway. Um, and there were a few things in it though I thought were a bit strange. That so. The, um, you could leap the, the aliens, uh, when they were reading their lips were speaking English mm-hmm. because she could read it. So that implies that the TARDIS was translating the lips. Interesting. But it wasn't translating the sign language. Right. And I figured if it could do one, it could do the other. And then I was just curious. I mean, the doctor said something about the the sign language having been deleted for uh, Semaphore, but I wasn't sure if he was talking about himself or if he was talking about the TARDIS. Yeah, and whether whether something how how would something gestural be translated anyway? I mean, it was very clear from last week that that the pieces we had to work with we had the the information given to us by the ghosts. We had the information about the fact that there was uh, that the dam burst at some point in the past. Uh, that there was the, this uh, this chamber, this uh, little cabinet uh, in the church that uh, that they were going to retrieve, and uh, you know, and the doctor. The doctor's ghost appears at the end, but we were given this very limited amount of information to work with, and then yeah. it, and then it was all um, it was all kind of set out. I I have to admit I didn't I didn't guess all of it either, but I did have somebody actually after last week's episode tweeted the doctor is in the cabinet. When I thought, well, that could very well be if it's that that, that was my thought. Suspended yeah, I, animation I, that would be a nice little trick, it's sort of like tr- finding Amy in the Pandorica. Yeah, yeah. A misdirection. Um, but it was just taking the long way around to get back to the, the present. Right. Right, exactly. Uh, Which it's fine if you're in a, if you're in suspended animation. It it doesn't really uh it doesn't really matter. The fact that the doctor's ghost I assumed wrongly that the ghosts were not ghosts and that 
that they were all not ghosts and there was something else going on that the doctor was going to going to have to become a ghost to undo but that that they weren't ghosts but in fact that tr- turned out not to be the case and that, that the doctor's ghost was a fraud yes um it, it it wasn't entirely clear what they were like whether they were definitively ghosts or they were just some technological construction um the doctor seems to think that they're they're ghosts or at least it's left open that they they were something yeah um, yeah so we should we should start with before the flood then um this is a very interesting episode because like listen this episode begins with an opening sequence where the doctor is essentially addressing the camera directly well not just addressing the camera but playing the theme music well <laughs> sure um, yeah, the fourth wall was uh, left in little pieces, I think. <laughs> well, I kept waiting for them to cut back to the two people he brought with him at the end of last episode that he'd be talking to. I thought that might be funny if at the end they're like, do you understand what he's talking about? Nope, nope, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. But no, he's just talking to us. It's called the bootstrap paradox. Google it. <laughs> and the, 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 the most uh, uh, worrying thing about this episode was this morning I had actually been Googling the bootstrap oh. paradox before I had seen this episode because I was figuring it was that kind of a, a setup. So my, I, head, I, my head just exploded. <laughs> so I literally <laughs> did Google the bootstrap paradox and then the doctor told me to Google it. And that is in itself some kind of bootstrap paradox. Yeah, and, it is. Uh, it is. We've just this episode will never be heard because it will never be started uh, because yeah. of time paradoxes. I I really enjoy. He uses this kind of classic, a uh, version of the classic uh, paradox story. He talks starts talking about Beethoven, and and I loved that. There's a moment where he says, "This didn't happen, by the way," <laughs> just to say because it could have because he's telling a time travel story, and normally when you do that, it's obviously theoretical, but. The doctor is a time traveler, so he he needs to warn you that it's theoretical that this is this didn't actually happen. Um, but it, you know who wrote who wrote Beethoven? If if uh, if the person with the the sheet music goes back in time and becomes Beethoven, that's it's great. I I, lo- I I loved it, but it was also just kind of a it was just so enjoyable and so strange that it's uh, just the doctor addressing the camera directly. I loved that. Yeah. Um, I also like the little nod that his amplifier that he plugs into was a Magpie Electrics yeah. amplifier. Yep. Um, but yes, I, I think, and he also had a large stack of Beethoven uh, vinyl in the TARDIS, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting that he had and a statue. stuck. Yes, and he'd stuck with the vinyl. I had the little. Um, when I played the piano as a kid, I had uh, you accomplished. You get. I got little uh, little plastic. Uh, composer statues after i <laughs> after completing certain portions of the of the coursework and progressing to a new level and i had a little plastic little white plastic beethoven that looked kind of like that lar- much larger beethoven statue that he was carrying around <laughs> anyway beethoven does not appear again until the end i guess of the episode but um when we jump back to the the story we're in uh we're we're in the town before the flood, as the st- as the story goes, uh, and it turns out it it is a uh, it is a military base that has been set to look like a village for war exercises, and it and it's got Cyrillic writing everywhere and and communist posters up, and it's this is 1980, the height of the Cold War, and this is where 
English soldiers or, or you know British soldiers train to invade Russia, I guess, invade the Soviet Union. Um, and and we also learn from uh, there's a there's a very nice moment about uh, where there's an info dump from um, uh, O'Donnell, who has said before that she's she worked uh, with the military and knows things about unit. And here she says she's part of military intelligence. And she said she she references Rose and Martha and Amy. Yeah. Which is really nice. And then she says, oh, this is 1980. This is before Harold Saxon or the Minister of War or the moon exploding. And he says, the Minister of War, wait, don't tell me, which is just, it could be a throwaway line or it could be set up and it's just toying with us. But lots of classic uh, references thrown in in a very short time. I would, yeah, I would assume that the Minister of War is something that we'll see at the end of the series. I would hope. Uh, I would hope so. It see it was laying out there just in that way. I'm sure because the doctor doesn't say I. Uh, I just don't want to know. He says I just don't want to know. I'm sure I'll find out soon enough. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as he I, turns to the camera once again. But a a uh, but a uh, uh, a kill the moon reference, mm-hmm. yes. uh, and and of course Harold Saxon, and then uh, I, I love somebody who's not even a companion but knows all about how the doctor works with companions and says, you know, is this how? Rose or Martha or Amy would react. I thought that was uh, that was just really a cool moment. I, they was, must send the military intelligence people on a course about the Doctor. Well, there, there was the implication in the last episode that by the time, in whatever time the, the, the second time frame is, uh, the Doctor is well-known, or at least well-known to the people who are on this, on this mission in this base. That he's mm. not, um, he's, they know who he is. He, he has no secret identity. He's not just a mysterious figure. They all know, oh, the Doctor, sure. Which is kind of funny. Um, we meet at this point. We then we finally meet our scary, spooky ghost with the top hat, who is Prentice, the the uh, the Undertaker, who has flown yes. this this funeral. It turns out that the black spaceship with a white interior is a is a hearse, and it's bringing the Fisher King, who oppressed his people, the latest in a long line of oppressors, because this is that same race from the God Complex. Uh, more of those jokes from Toby Whitehouse because he invented them and he likes them because they're funny. Um, and uh, he also offers the doctor a selection of items to oppress him with, should he like to return with him yeah, in his I, spaceship. I think he was played by Paul Kay, who's, uh, well, a British comedian I know from the 90s, but he was also, he's been in Game of Thrones recently and oh, yeah. things like that. That's who it is. Um, but unrecognizable under under, under, under that the, makeup to be that yeah. uh, to be that uh, character of, of, of Prentice. But that's interesting that that we spend an entire episode with him as a silent, spooky ghost, and then we see him here, and he is this, you know, kind of bumbling figure. Yeah, and then he gets about four lines and is immediately killed. Right, and I thought, ah, okay. But then we see him again because, of course, this episode doubles back on itself at one point, which was also fun. But we'll get there. There's a reference at some point in here to the Akatinians. And I had mm-hmm. a moment of whether that was a uh, Rings of Akatin reference in some way. But I don't know. And quite frankly, I don't think I'm ever going to go back and watch that episode to find out because I didn't like it. <laughs> but it's it's there. Um, so the doctor calls calls uh, Clara. Yes, uh, I liked his uh, portrait and landscape turning. Every oh. time she turned her phone, he would turn his screen to match well, whatever that, her FaceTime was set That's to. how FaceTime works, I guess, yeah. right? Um, I thought that was funny. It's a, it's a FaceTime. I mean, she's, she's recognizably using an iPhone. 
Yes, it was a 4S, I think. Yeah, it was a small one. I thought, I thought, what phone is she using that's all thick like that with the silvery thick edge? And then I looked at it head on and I thought, oh, it's an iPhone. It's and a- I was thinking, well, you know, she's a teacher. She probably doesn't have a massive salary. So she, yeah, she'd probably still be having a 4S. Well, sure. And the doctor, when the doctor met her, it was 2013, right? Or just the beginning of 2014, I guess. So, yeah. so it wouldn't have been out of date then. But, uh, you know, maybe she's, yeah, she's a teacher. They don't pay well, uh, I guess, at her school. It's a shame. Ian Chesterton should get on that. Um, <laughs> pay the teachers better. Uh, but the, so this call is interesting because he's calling, he's calling the future, which it, throughout this, I think there's some level of, um, of uh, you just have to accept that these timelines are running in parallel. Because when, for me, I, I started to think about, well, but no, it's the future and you're in the past. But I think, I think we just are, maybe even the phone serves this purpose. The phone call serves this purpose of saying these timelines are really linked. They are progressing together. Now that the doctor is in the past and he's left the, he's left the future behind, um, they're still sort of happening in parallel because otherwise a lot of things start to break down. Like, you know, he's calling her right after he's left and the, the order of deaths is the order of death as we've seen them, because of course they would have happened in a different order, from the perspective of actual time. So I think, I, I think that's really interesting that um, first off, he doesn't go back to, well, he tries to go back and, and fails uh, later on, I think, but, um, yeah. but he, but he wants to just call her. And, and so I don't know, I, I just, I don't know if the, you did this, but I had that moment of like, well, wait a second now, I guess yeah, we have no, to just accept they're in sync. I think, yes, it, it's don't pick at it. Uh, don't pull at the threads mm-hmm. um, and just, just watch it. Um, yeah. Th- so we had the uh, the order. So what he was saying was the order that the people were dying in, or right. apparently were were dying in, and uh, he goes through this complicated thing of, well, you know, make sure that you go into the um, uh, Faraday cage, but leave the phone propped up outside on right. a Cause, handy because I might have to call you. Yes, and then immediately the phone is stolen hmm, by ghosts. Yes, um, uh, and then he just decides. Right. Well, I'm just going to uh, uh, go back and save everyone, and the TARDIS completely refuses to cooperate. Right. Just moves him a little bit, and in fact, kicks him back half an hour. So, um, oh, but before, so before that happens, um, he gets the, Clara breaks the news to him that he's he's died and is oh yes yeah. Yeah. And he and he takes a moment, which I think is kind of interesting, where he's kind of like gripping the handrails of the TARDIS and looking off into the distance a little bit, um, sort of mourning himself before he kind of kicks it into gear and says, well, I'm just going to... Yeah, and he, he says that he, he wants to talk to himself and he you know says he's a huge admirer. Yeah, FaceTime with your own ghost. That's always yeah. nice. Um, he, nice line that, that we get. The, this regeneration's a bit of a clerical error anyway. Yes. Very good. Um, so we get the whole Back to the Future 2 bit where yes. they go back half an hour and watch the um, proceeding. From a different camera uh, angle. Yeah. And A, I wondered if they used two cameras and f- filmed it at the same time or whether they recorded it twice. But I was expecting that half an hour to to mean something more. And it, it, it was more a, a way to sort of bring them back and... Um, for uh i can't remember the guy's name to to sort of look longingly at uh, o'donnell right after her death right 
the the um yeah kicking kicking it back in time it makes it a little creepier right that the tardis has rejected his going back to the back to the future and instead they have to they get kicked backward and they get to see this this from another perspective we saw that in uh, father's day too right yeah yeah. Uh, purposefully but and you know i guess the way they shoot these is it's all single camera and they just shoot coverage and from from various Mm. angles and then put it together and so obviously um you know you would just add angles right so in addition to their regular staging the scene you know a, a few times in the regular angles they would add in these sort of reverse angles um, but it's a nice, it's a, it's a fun touch to see a scene again from a different perspective because just like the doctor where, you know, we're now peeking around the corner and seeing them having, having these conversations. It's also nice because Prentice is alive here and then we get to see him kind of go into the spaceship. And so there's that moment of, um, you know, no, he's going to get killed. How's that? What's going to happen? Um, which, uh, that, that was, it, that was kind of fun, but it's mostly, you're right about the doctor tackling the guy so that he doesn't save uh, O'Donnell, because we've already seen that she's died by looking at the Fisher King or being shot by him or something. It's kind of yeah, unclear. I, I was um, I was surprised that so that I think we missed the point where the Fisher King woke up. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I I thought it would be the Doctor who wrote the symbols on the wall, just because I was convinced that the Doctor did everything to sort of uh, set this up somehow. Uh, but it seems that it was the Fisher King who wrote it and right. w- wakes up fairly soon after they've arrived. Yeah, I guess – and I, I didn't entirely follow this, but I guess this was his plan is that he was deposed um, on on the planet where Prentice is from. Um, he was deposed and this was his sort of escape plan was – So he faked his own death. Right, gets taken to Earth, uh, sends out the signal – um, collects the ghost energy and is able to do that to sort of like send out a beacon and rebuild his rebuild his armies on a on a new planet. But again, I think we're not meant to pull at that too much, but just to accept that he's a very bad guy and he's got bad plans. And this is you know, but he's obviously on his own and in a, at a weak point now because he's had to flee and fake his own death. Um, something else we didn't mention is that there's a there's a a really nice bit between Clara and the doctor when they're doing their FaceTiming where, where um, she talks where she's trying to convince him to save himself. And she says, you've given me someone else to be, which I think mm. is interesting. The sort of fundamental, like she wanted to be more or different from who she was before. And that by being with a doctor, she has, um, she now has someone else she can be who is Clara, the companion of the doctor. Um, which I think knowing now that Jenna Coleman is going to leave the series at some point in the near future, um, that, that is even more meaningful for me because you have to start thinking about what, you know, why, why would Clara leave and, and, you know, how much of her identity now or the identity she would like to have is, is bound up in, in traveling with the doctor. Well, we had the the scene in the previous episode where he was saying that there's only room for one doctor, and she right. seems to be becoming more and more of the doctor. And I'm wondering if that is, in somehow, going to lead to uh, her leaving or a confrontation or something. Right. Uh, you can't have two doctors. It's too many. Yeah. So she she will get her own TARDIS and will fly yeah. off and have nice. uh, parallel adventures. You take Missy's. I don't think Missy yes. has one. Or, I would like to see her and Missy as a as a team. Yeah, but, they can just take uh, off and say "see ya," and we don't see those adventures, and it's the yeah. end. And then Big Finish can do the audios in yeah. five years' time. Exactly. 
Um, so, so when we, we finally get in, into the church um, and the Fisher King is there and, and he's in the darkness for a while and then, and then, and then he comes out and this is intercut. There's so the, they're, they're in the, in the church and the cabinet is open and empty. And then in the future, the cabinet is, uh, is closed, but opening, which is, I, I liked how that built the tension, like what's in there. Maybe it is the doctor. Maybe it's the Fisher King. Something is going on in there. Um, but the doctor confronts the, the Fisher King because he, at this point, he's sort of like, I'm, look, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm just going to, I'm just going to cut to the chase here. I'm going to walk in and talk to the guy who's causing all of this to happen. Um, and the Fisher King starts out in shadow and he comes out and, and is a very weird looking creature. Um, parts of initially looking it's kind of like the sycorax i thought kind of, initially looking kind of fake and then you can see that sort of underneath the bony parts are these kind of squishy bits that are moving mm. that i thought made it uh, upon more uh close analysis um it looked better than i initially thought when when i first when i first saw him because he's got when this I, gooey yeah when i first saw him i thought it was a possibly a costume yeah if you see what I mean, even though it was a costume, but um, I thought there might be a character wearing a big... Um, scary monster. Scary monster. Bone outfit. monster costume. But yeah. but yes, as you said, you could see the mouth sort of pulsating. It's that we have the weird, um, you know, it's it's all going uh, up and down instead of uh, side to side. And I, I wrote down, it looks like an alien from Infinity Blade or maybe Destiny. It's like a, <laughs> it reminded me of a video game monster of some sort or demon or something, but it's the voice of, uh, I believe Peter Serafinowicz. Yes. Darth Maul himself. Darth Maul. And of course, many funny things too. Yes. Like, look around you. And, uh, but, uh, he does, he does a good, he's got that deep voice. He does a good creepy, uh, creepy voice. Um, but very eloquent mm-hmm. with it. And he sort of, again, he seems to know exactly who the doctor is. Um, yeah. because he not only knows he's a time lord he sort of seems to know that it's the doctor yeah or at least he knows his you know he's he says something about one man lost in time mm. and all those kind of things yeah although um, that could just mean i'm from the future that he he says uh but then he calls him a time lord so who knows it's the fisher king is is actually i enjoy i enjoy this character because he's creepy and eloquent like you said and we don't know a lot about him other than he was basically a, a tyrant or a conqueror who is now fled but has a grand plan and uh, do we need to know more than that i think i kind of like the fact that 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 we don't know you know all his likes and dislikes or anything like that he's just <laughs> suffice to say he's a really bad uh guy who has a plan that is, that needs to be stopped and um you know i i kind of enjoyed that and and looks kind of creepy yeah, and I, I like the way he sort of got stuck into the Time Lords and called them cowardly, vain curators mm. and and things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whoever whoever he is, and where, where, well, I mean, you know, was he killed? You didn't see a body. That's true. He just uh, he got flooded. Have, he was running. He got away. flooded. Maybe he can breathe underwater, oh. and yeah, he could come back. He could come back. It, it's just it. It is it's tantalizing. I think I would say that we don't know a lot about him. He's interesting. And then he's sort of swept away. Um, and, uh, I kind of like, I like that, that, that it, it lets you kind of fill in, boy, that was a really, you know, he was a really bad guy and who knows where he is, but we just don't know. He's mysterious. And I don't know. I, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, there's also a great scene right after that on back, back in the future where they send the translator guy to, 
to go get the iPhone. Yes, because he's the one person who hasn't read the the magic symbols. Right. And um, he runs into the ghosts. Um, oh, and before they even send them, the, the, she asks, uh, Cass asks Clara, um, you know, were you always like this, uh, sending people into danger? Yeah. Or was that when you started working with the doctor? And, and she just says, you know, I, I do what I need to do. I do what needs to be done. But when he goes to get the phone, there's that great scene where all the ghosts come out and they surround him. And he's standing there and they're all surrounding him, looking at him. And that I thought that was really enjoyably scary and creepy that like, what are they going to do? Is he really safe? And then they kind of like part like, nope, you can go. You're not yeah. one of us. You can move along. I thought that was pretty cool. I think shortly after that, um, Cass goes out. Or they, they both go out to um, right. find what's happened. Completely invalidating their plan, original yes. plan, right? He's not back. And I guess they're just. He didn't come back right away, so now we're just going to go out there and risk ourselves anyway. But we had the the nice sort of silent uh, uh, POV POV shot of her walking down the corridor with uh, the um, scary axe wielding uh, monster behind her, which she can't hear. Oh yeah, I, I liked that that we hear him dragging the axe along the ground, and then cut to her perspective, and it's you know it's muffled to inaudible. With no music as well. <laughs> yeah, I, that, I thought that that was, uh, that was pretty good. This idea that, oh, if you can't hear the monsters coming up from behind you, what, that's a, a whole other level. And you see her continually kind of checking behind her um, just in case, which is what you would have to do. And then in, in the end, she sort of crouches down. Because I kept thinking, can she feel the vibrations of that thing? And she crouches down and she can feel the vibrations. And then of that she thing. turns into Daredevil. And yeah. gets gets the full 3D view of an axe. Which, yeah, well, she's that good. That's the yeah. I, I know that was the daredevil moment, wasn't it? But then she just sort of run, turns around and runs through the ghost. See, that's the downside of being a ghost is that yeah, you've got an axe and all that, but they can also just run right through you. <laughs> and then then where are you? Um, I also like that Clara Clara has an argument with her when when the 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 sign language interpreter is gone that they yeah. have to you know, they have to make it work in, ter- in terms of interpretation because she doesn't understand what she's saying. Mm. Um, Clara doesn't understand the sign language. And I, I thought that was um, kind of a fun uh, little moment too in the midst of all of this. Um, but we have the doctor talking, I think cuts back to the doctor talking to the Fisher King. Yes. And um, he basically decides that, you know, while he doesn't want to... Uh, break the laws of time what this guy's done has even worse that he's broken the rules of life and death right and this justifies the doctor doing pretty much anything but he he wants to do i I don't know if it does but i i like that the doctor feels like he has to have some sort of justification some righteous you know indignity before he can just go ahead and meddle with with uh Time. And he, he says, you know, you know, we might end up with a universe ruled by cats, but yes. that would be better than nothing at all. Yes, I, I enjoyed that. It does. It, it also goes back to when, um, when the guy again, I can't remember which which one he is, um, says is angry about O'Donnell dying, and says, you know, you're going to save yourself or you're going to save Clara, but you you weren't going to save O'Donnell. I thought it was a little bit odd because um, at that point, I mean. On one level, yeah, the doctor basically is saying, "Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I care about Clara, and I don't care so much about O'Donnell." But, but I felt like it was weird that it wasn't said that, you know, 
he did tell her to stay behind in the TARDIS. That was his attempt to subvert mm. the order of deaths. He was trying right then to say, you stay here and we'll go out and then you won't die. And then, then we will have beaten this list. And she refuses. And so when the guy gets um, grumpy about that, I, I felt like I wanted to hear the doctor say, look, I, I tried. And I know that's just restating what was already there, but I kind of felt like that was a, a pretty strong argument. Um, much stronger than his the, his the next part of it, which is, but I'm going to save Clara because she's more important than, yeah, yeah. than O'Donnell is. And then we see that here where he's like, well, now this is outrageous. I'm Now I've got a reason to save everybody is because you bent the rules of life and death by, by stealing. I guess if you're really bad, then it's okay to change time. Yeah. I, I do wonder, I mean... I always wonder the problem with the doctor being so clever and, and, and having episodes like the opening two parter where there's actually a scene where everything gets resolved because the doc, the doctor actually was, uh, always had another plan and was just sort of make, going along, but he always had a plan in the end to beat Davros. Right. Um, mm-hmm. the problem with that is that then I, with, with scenes like this, where he's talking about bending the rules of life and death and all that, I'm never entirely convinced that the doctor, um, doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> like, I, well, I part of me thinks, does he really think he's going to change time here, or is he just sort of going with the flow because he's gotten the idea now that this there, that there's more to this, that a solution will present itself if he if he keeps going down this path. And I I'm unclear here. It sounds like he's being very indignant, but I'm wondering if part of the doctor is like, I think you know, there's there's an open cha- uh, you know chamber here. <laughs> That's being brought aboard in the future. Perhaps that's what happens here. Maybe he's already figuring it out. I think the, the yeah, it, it was strange because um, that the episode seemed to wrap up very quickly mm-hmm. in terms of I, I was expecting more in uh, involved in the in the solution. But yeah, we'll come to that in a second. Right, right. It's just I, I end up sometimes in this. The doctor has is we we like seeing him solve problems. But every now and then you get something that is solved like it was in the opening two-parter with, oh, yeah, I knew this was a trick all along and I have this whole backup plan and now the sewers are going to get regenerated and ha, 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 we'll see you later. Um, mm. and, and, and although that's enjoyable, it kind of undercuts or at least confuses a moment like this where I really think the episode wants us to feel the Doctor's despair a little bit, that that he's he's going to... Uh, you know, he doesn't want to change time. And then he gets really indignant and he says, I am going to change time. Uh, part of me in, in the back of my mind is thinking, ah, but are you really or are you also playing the long game where you've put the you put the pieces together and you know you don't really need to do that? And you're he does. Mm. I, I, I have to say um, <laughs> he is actually lying to the Fisher King at this point, because what happens is the Fisher King is told by the doctor that the the symbols aren't there anymore and he's he's already changed time and the and the fisher king believes it and goes out to the spaceship and sees that the symbols are still there and gets destroyed by the flood because the energy he, the doctor set the energy pod to blow up at the dam so i guess you know you know thinking of it that way i guess this is all just big talk by the doctor in order to convince the fisher king to uh yeah i mean I like, think it just was like the... with davros it's the same it's it's the same mo is you you talk Maybe some of it's true, but really what you're doing is just talking a good game to to uh, your adversary. Give yourself some time as well to figure it out. Right. Yeah, and, and so the Fisher King, instead of just shooting him, pushes him out of the way and goes and looks at the, the craft. My writing, my writing, they erased my writing. Oh, oh, oh he was lying all along. Oh. Yeah. 
and then the dam blows yeah. up. And you know, I, I did think uh, that, the, you know, the missing power cell, it was like, well, that's probably what blew up the dam. Right. I wrote that down last week. Yes. And uh, indeed it was true. Uh, so the, he goes outside and the... I don't know quite how that they got that second power cell all the way to the dam, which seemed to be quite far away from the village. I, I wondered that. that. That's something that we didn't see along with the return of the TARDIS to the future time frame. We didn't see that either. Yeah. It's just sort of, well, we saw the, you know, emergency hologram or whatever, but it, it was, there were some shortcuts there. And I think, yeah, I think perhaps the doctor before he goes to confront the Fisher King has already planted the, the, well, it might be with the the other doctor who was half an hour earlier or something, you know, that had got them an extra half hour to go and uh, plant this uh, power cell. Yeah. Maybe. Possibly. Uh, but, yeah. So then we get the uh, the emergency medical, no, the emergency hologram, uh, the, the security protocol 712, uh, which was from Blink, I believe. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, no DVD required this time. Yes. And the TARDIS goes uh, back to the present. And then the Doctor emerges from the suspended animation box. But I did think that that box looked too small to put the Fisher King in. Yes. Which was one reason why I thought that it was the Doctor, because the Fisher King was quite, quite tall. And the box was designed for the top-hatted uh, man. I can only assume, I, I, and again, maybe we, we record these. One of the challenges of recording something right after you've seen it is um, that people who will then watch it two or three times and look at the Wikipedia page that's been written in the intervening day since it aired will write us and say, I can't believe you didn't notice this thing. And often the answer is, well, we only just watched it the one time and then we immediately recorded a podcast and we don't have any reference material because it just aired. But I, I was, in my head at least, I was trying to calculate it out that, well, first off, the Fisher King's not actually dead. So you wouldn't put him in the box. He wouldn't want to be in the box. He's not actually dead. Two, this spaceship is probably, yes, it's made for somebody smaller. So they just lay him on top, which is probably something that he knew. And it's mm. part of his plan. So I'm sort of okay to go with it, that the box is there with nobody in it. And the reason there's nobody in it is because uh, there's not supposed to be. And that the reason that it becomes relevant is because of the doctor's plan and not... But then, no, because he drags the... Wait a second. Okay, now I'm really confused. Because he drags so the, the box into the church. So what? what is... It, the Fisher King's plan is to just sit in the box and wait for the, the ghosts to build up and make more ghosts. So he is going to have to fit in there. That's going to be a tight fit. Yeah, it just looked too too small. And it was for the pilot, like the the Undertaker guy. And I didn't quite get that. The ship yeah. piloted itself and he was in it, but... It's a hearse, so it should be it should be for the dead body. But the dead body was sitting on top. Okay, I'm a little confused by that. Don't write in. I'm sure we'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> but but uh, but that was obviously part of his plot because he drags it to the he drags it to the church. Um, and I think the idea there is that he's going to lie in wait while the ghosts make more ghosts, which make more ghosts until ultimately... The, uh, there was a line, I, I remember now, there was a line and it said something about he would the he would make more and more ghosts in the future and then that would bring an armada to wake him from his sleep. Yeah, so that, that's, so that's that his plan. that was his plan. He was going to have to just really crouch down low and just be very tight yeah it, it, it was a good thing that the doctor foiled his plan because he would have got to the point where he tried to get in the box and realized he didn't fit yeah and then 
Yeah. That would be that would be a shame. But of course, by blowing up the dam, he's also preventing there from being more people uh, coming into contact with the ghosts until they build the undersea, until they take the undersea, you know, the base, the under under lake base. Right, mm-hmm. which is which is a fun way to foil the Fisher King's plan to spread the ghosts is that there's just the one ghost and he's wandering around a lake bottom with no people around for hundreds of years before the base gets established and then 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 it starts to kick off, which is yeah. again something that we didn't need to hear in dialogue, but that if you if you kind of turn it over in your in your head, it, it starts to make sense. And then so we have the the doctor Pops out of the box. Yep. And uh, the... Sonic sunglasses to the rescue again. Yes. Um, uh, I did see an interview with uh, Stephen Moffat where he said that he basically just did it. uh, He didn't say to annoy the fans, but... Yeah, but... uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think so. Um, Now it's just a question of how long will he keep them? How long will this this, uh, troll go on? But it's uh, fun. Yes. Um, but then the, uh, ghost doctor starts making the roar of the Fisher King, which lures all the other, um, ghosts back into the Faraday cage. Right. And then we discover that, as I wrote down, ghost doctor was a big cheating hologram. Mm-hmm. And it was exact, it was the same trick that they had used with Clara, uh, to get the ghosts to go in there before. Right, which I guess is the show your work part. Like, well, it wasn't too much of a cheat because we did show you with a, we did show a hologram before, and it was projected from the glasses or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was I I totally had forgotten about that. But it, to be fair, it's in there in part one. So I I I, I guess that counts. <laughs> as I didn't quite understand where the program to run the Ghost Doctor came from. Like, how did that get from the past to the present? Oh, well, he said, actually, there is a line about that. He says that when they brought the the chamber, the suspended animation chamber, into the base, after they took their little mini-sub and retrieved it and brought it into the base, at that moment, now that the Doctor and the sunglasses are inside, the sunglasses, which are apparently still active, even though the Doctor is in hibernation, <laughs> the sunglasses, he says, actually connected to the main computer uh, of the base. And at that point, they're in contact. And and his plan, his program begins to run. Oh, good battery life. Um, so yeah, you would think maybe it's got a nice sleep mode, a low power mode for the <laughs> for the centuries while it's inactive, but it's waiting to be woken up by that moment where it, it can connect to the base computer. So as unlikely as that is with time travel, you know he knows exactly where he's going, and he knows that that thing is going to be brought inside. So he he is able to. Um, before he before he goes to sleep, he can program all that in and then know that he's going to be brought inside and then can be woken back up and can project the hologram. So it does kind of work in the end. It, it, this is the latest in a line of Doctor Who episodes where time travel is kind of pivotal to the plot. It's not a uh, it's time travel isn't just the conveyance that gets us to an interesting story, but it's actually a story about time travel. Um, and that this this one doesn't start out looking like it's going to be that. But of course it is. <laughs> 
And it, the Doctor himself has a line about reverse engineering the narrative, well, which seemed to be what they were doing with the episode. So this is the beauty of, um, and and I guess you could say they they hung a lantern on it by having the bootstrap paradox at the beginning. But this is the point of the episode where we see why the conversation of the bootstrap paradox and Beethoven happens at the beginning is here – he says, how did I know to do all those things? Where did those ideas originate? I did them because I saw them being done, not because I thought of them. So where does that originate? And Clara's response is something like, huh. <laughs> and that's, that's it. <laughs> and then they move on. Yeah. yeah because it's, it's time, forget it. It's time travel. But um, it would be, you know, it's just, it's a nice, it's a nice bit of art um, that, you get that at the end because if all you got was the end, you'd say, wow, that's kind of cheating, isn't it? But because they set you up at the beginning with Beethoven, mm-hmm. I then it becomes sort of a delightful connection to the thing. Oh, I remember Beethoven. Right. And it doesn't feel quite so much like cheating, even though I think it is cheating. Um, it, it It's not so bad if they say, look, this is going to happen. There, there's going to be a bootstrap paradox um, watch for it. <laughs> and then when you see it, you go, yay, it's the paradox. Instead of saying, that ending was just a bootstrap paradox. Grr, grr. So I, I can't decide whether that was, um, whether that open scene was Stephen Moffat or whether oh. that opening scene was, and the, and the closing scene were, it doesn't feel like it was part of the original script. It may be that, that there was a conversation between Stephen Moffat and, and Toby Whitehouse about the fact that there's a bootstrap paradox in here, and they decided rather than take it out, they would directly address it. But that's, how, that's what it felt to me. I mean, it, it, it's possible that it was always in the original script, but it struck me as being maybe not that. Um, it also struck me that if they were running a little short, that opening scene would be a good <laughs> A good way to pad the episode out. There's an interview uh, with uh, Toby Whitehouse going around from New York Comic Con, and I think he said originally it was a one episode thing, mm. and then it gets uh, it became two episodes. Um, but I think I think it was like mostly his idea, and then I think there, there was some implication that Stephen Moffat had suggested some some parts of it. So yeah. it could be. Um, but I mean, I I sound like I've been critical of the episode, but I did actually enjoy it quite a lot. Well, I mean, I think I think now that we've kind of parsed it, uh, it's worth talking about it on that level. Um, yeah, I agree with you. So so overall, um, this episode and the two parter, what what do you think? Uh, no, it was good, and and I I kind of I wished it had been a bit more tricksy in its like moving pieces. Um, because I felt a bit cheated at the end when, you know, it was like, oh, well, it was, it was just a hologram and, you know, he was in the box. And I, I kind of wanted there to be more. And I thought with the half hour uh, leap back that something was going to happen through that. Uh, but maybe that would have just made the episode even more complicated. Uh, but no, it, it was good. And I liked the... Uh, the Doctor seems to still be having more fun than, I think, in the previous season. I, I've heard some people complain that... Um, that I, well, I do agree with that. The, the, the Peter Capaldi's kind of attitude is, yeah, yeah, he's having a little... He can still bring it down to be very serious when he needs to, but um, he seems to be having a good time. I, I hear from some people who say, oh, well, you know, two-parter, the pace is a lot slower. It feels like they only... They'll pick up on 
Toby Whitehouse saying it was originally a one-parter and say, aha, see, it's one episode worth of story uh, stretched over two episodes. And I can see that because I had a couple moments where I thought, you know, wow, this is, you know, there's not a lot here for for two episodes worth of, of story uh, or, or of time. And yet, on another level, I could really make the argument that um, there were a lot of episodes, in the, especially in the David Tennant era, uh, but even in the Matt Smith era, that felt like they didn't have enough room to breathe, and you had mm. dialogue dashed off very quickly, and you had turn, you know, turns of the plot that happened so fast that you can't even appreciate that they turned because you've moved on to the next thing. And, and so I can see with these episodes, I kind of appreciated that you know it's it's meant to be scary and spooky at times and it's much you're much more able to set that kind of tone if you can take a little time <laughs> and if you have to rush uh i'm not sure how scary you can be because you have to move on to the next thing so i i, I think I, I appreciate the fact that in this part two it, it, just as in part one the pace is a little bit slower did feel I don't know it felt like there was an episode and a half worth of content here so I can mm, understand yeah. how it was maybe too much for one but not quite enough for two but in the end I didn't feel bored I I it just was a very different pace than some of the um, breakneck episodes that we've seen in the past where which they seem to be very studiously trying not to do this time like the that season what was it two years ago where they had all those standalone episodes like dinosaurs on a spaceship and a town called mercy where it was we're going to do a whole movie in 45 minutes and this year Mm -hmm. it seems very much like no we're not we're gonna you know we're gonna take our time and and give you something that feels a little bit more like I don't want to say more like the old Doctor Who because the pacing in the old Doctor Who was amazingly impossibly slack for what you would see <laughs> to, on today's television. But give it more room than and and, and I like that about it. I, I I don't think this episode would have been as effectively spooky if they had had to rush through it. Yeah, I mean, I think the having the break right in the middle with the the cliffhanger of the the Doctor apparently being dead is the perfect place to to break it for right. a week. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, I think, are all the episodes two-parters? Are all the stories well, two-parters all, this season? I think everything is paired this season. It's unclear whether they're all two-parters. I think they've said that they're all linked in some way. So some of them may mm. not be quite as uh, quite as connected. Yeah. But it's unclear. So, like, the next, the next two... It's the same writer, or no? It's the same director, but it's it's they're paired. There's there's the Jamie Matheson and Stephen Moffat are writing next week's episode, and then it's Catherine Tregena who wrote the episode after that. But their titles are the girl who died and the woman who lived, and they share a director. Mm. So the suggestion is there's something that connects them at least thematically, if not plot wise. Then there's another more sort of straight straight on it looks like two-parter and then there's another pair where it's two different writers but the same director and then it's a straight on two-parter at the end so um some of them are are clearly two-parters and some of them are this mysterious sort of like uh uh, paired episodes unclear whether they relate beyond Mm. sort of thematic things but that's this that's the theme of this season is is pairs it's interesting yeah Oh, speaking of pairs, there is there is the I would say kind of gratuitous, but it's nice. The uh, tell tell uh, tell her you love her, I, and that I wish I had done that before it was too late. Where 
uh, he, the guy who's very sad that, uh, that O'Donnell has died, tells the, the, the interpreter to tell, uh, Cass that, that he loves mm. her. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's nice and all, um, I, it's fine. It, it seemed not entirely set up to my, to, to my, uh, uh, standards of, uh, that it didn't just kind of, I mean, it didn't come out of the blue, but it, it, we didn't spend a whole lot of time with these characters enough to feel like this was a, a thing that needed to happen. And I, I felt the same about the, about the other, the other pair that I get that this guy was enamored of O'Donnell and very sad that she died. But I don't know if I, I had spent enough time with them to have, you know, have a rooting interest there. I think literally the only sort of sign of that was she wouldn't let him go in the ship yeah, because she thought it was dangerous yeah, and that, that was it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's nice. It just was like, Oh, okay. I guess we'll have a little, a nice little, uh, uh, romantic declaration here at the end to, to wrap things up. But it was just kind of, you know, it was fine. I just, I, I like that kind of stuff in stories. I just, I'm not sure it was earned. Mm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a bad person for, <laughs> what, what, why don't I like love stories? I do. I do. I just need to know who the characters are and that they actually like each other. Um, because you know it is his job to interpret for her so they have to be together all the time so Mm. that doesn't really tell me anything about their relationship so maybe i missed it so i i'd written down just uh for the two uh episodes yeah so there seem to be quite a few star trek references huh so one one of the doors that came down said uh 1701b interesting uh I, I don't know if this was just after I saw that I was thinking it. The, the uh, hearse looked a bit like a, a, a shuttlecraft. Shuttlecraft, yeah. I, I did definitely thought that. But there was also, there was a painting on the wall um, of uh, the ship. I think it was a sort of Viking type ship, which might in fact link into the next episode uh-huh. or something. Uh, and the figures on it had, there was one with a gold, one with blue, and one with a red tunic on it. Huh. And I just, I saw that at the corner of my eye and I thought, after I saw the 1701B, I was like, whoever's doing the production design on this just like Star Trek and has put in little references. Because I can't see the door number being an accident. No, no, definitely not. You're never going to see 1701 without it meaning that. Yeah. Well, uh, Stephen Moffat has, has been known to make some Star Trek references from time to time, so I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't be opposed. The the other thing um, I wrote down was, this is a bit more of a stretch, but uh, so there's a game Bioshock, which is set in an underwater uh, city. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a key phrase, uh, would you kindly, which is used in the, in the game. Uh, and I'm not going to say why. Uh, but the, the doctor says at one point, uh, kindly put the, the base back into night mode. And I just had the two with this underwater base. And I don't know if that was a deliberate reference or if it's just something I picked up on uh, erroneously. But I was curious. That's nice. I, I you know, I, I wouldn't put it past them to make those references in passing. And then we had next week's thing. And it seems we we're did. getting... Sp- Space Vikings. Vikings? Are they space Vikings or are they just Vikings? Well, I guess well, they've got Vikings. cyber, cyber bi- Vikings yeah. at least, right? There was a there was a an eye patch that was like an electronic eye patch or something. Well, I think it's like you get space pirates, but now we're going to have space Vikings. All right. 
All right. But, and this is the one with uh, – this has Maisie Williams from uh, from uh, Game of Thrones in it. Yeah, so everybody from Game of Thrones is passing their way through. Yeah, and this – I'm also very excited because next week's episode is uh, written – it's Stephen Moffat and Jamie Matheson. And um, he wrote my favorite episode of last season, Flatline. Right. And also the quite good Mummy, Mummy on the Orient Express too. So – um, and I saw him at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles in February, and he, he seems like a uh, a lovely fellow who really enjoyed his uh, his writing in Doctor Who. So he's got this is his assignment for this year is working with Stephen Moffat. I don't I wonder what the story is behind that on um on the girl uh, on the girl who died right yeah yeah I can imagine with uh, writing with Stephen Moffat it might just be a case of Stephen Moffat gives you the central idea and you write it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's possible. Or it, Peter Harness, who who uh, wrote uh, Kill the Moon, also has a co-bylined episode. Episode 8 is co-bylined. Um, mm. He wrote episode 7, and then episode 8 is Peter Harness with Stephen Moffat. So um, I wonder what the, uh, what the collaboration rules are but Stephen Moffat seems to have been unlike Russell Russell T Davis who would who would credit the original writer and then rewrite everything Stephen Moffat mm. has had this trend of having these uh these co-credit uh pieces he's done that in the past too so there's some some amount of collaboration that uh that went on here but still I'm excited I'm excited for that episode because Vikings and Maisie Williams and uh because of uh Jamie Matheson being involved in the writing of it so all those things are good yeah, but I think so far so good on the season. I think so too. I really did. I, I, I we can we we picked it apart, but yes, I I I enjoyed it. I love the base under siege. I love the creepy um, training village with the dam that we know is going to burst at some point very soon. Uh, with all the all the Soviet things everywhere, I thought that was a fun creepy setting to go with the base underwater base under siege setting and yeah. and then throw in some ghosts and a really weird alien uh, bad guy um that was all yeah that was a that was a nice little stew of different uh, doctor who elements um, and, and i really did enjoy the beethoven uh monologue oh, so to great. camera so great that was fantastic that and was i think fantastic. peter capaldi must have something in his contract that he gets a guitar like yeah. every episode now <laughs> yep guitar and sunglasses that's our doctor now but his jacket got ripped, so he may have to change clothes. It should really be a sonic guitar. Mm. It, well, aren't all guitars sonic? True. Mm. All right. Well, that's this. Uh, that's this episode of the Doctor Who Flashcast. James, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and and uh, geeking out with me about Doctor Who. We do this. We do this anyway. But this time we <laughs> recorded it. Yes. Always a pleasure. Yes. And uh, everybody out there, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week, as as promised, with the girl who dies, the girl who died, Jamie Matheson and Stephen Moffat. And my guest will be Mr. Dan Warren. You may have heard of him. Sometimes he talks about other TV shows, but he'll be talking about Doctor Who next week. So, until then, thanks for listening, and we will see you in a week. On the incomparable